asking you that you would just so take over our service. Lord, I, I pray right now that you would uh, reveal your presence to us. Lord, we would rather be together as a church family in the sanctuary, but Lord, that's not possible right now. So we pray that you would help us to be encouraged. I ask you, Lord, to uh, bless these aforementioned prayer requests, that you would meet each need, and that everyone that we've asked prayer would receive what they need from you. Lord, I do pray, God, for our church. I ask you to continue to bless our church and to keep us healthy and safe. I pray for our country. Lord, we're divided. And I know that the only thing that can unite us as a country is the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray right now that you would work your work in our midst. Father, I pray for the message this morning. I ask you, Lord, to help me focus, to keep me on track, and may your, this message be pleasing to you. May it change us. May it make us more in the image of Jesus Christ. And may we sincerely seek to honor you in all that we do. Lord, I do need your help and I pray right now that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would enable me. In Jesus' name we pray and amen. Psalm 73, if you would, 73 in the scriptures. To say that we're living in discouraging times would perhaps be an understatement. Uh, it doesn't take much. You can uh, peruse through Facebook and almost post after post after post. Very discouraging. Uh, some people are extremely discouraged over the election results or lack thereof. And there are so many things that is pressing up on us at this time that we're in. I, I see all kinds of posts of, about 2020 and how that, you know, making fun of 2020 and how we'd all like to get rid of it. We'd all like to have better times. But I want to tell you that it really is our own fault when we are discouraged in these discouraging times. This is not popular for someone to stand up and tell you this, but do you know that you and the Lord are in control of how or whether you are discouraged or whether you are encouraged? And I feel like I need to tell you this because I see there's no reason to be lamenting over all that we're going through. Now, I know that some of you are going through much more difficult things than others. And some of you are going through uh, things that are life-altering, the death of a loved one, uh, someone's really ill, maybe you've lost all your finances and things like that. I understand that. But what I want to show you from the Scriptures is what the psalmist did to get out of his discouraging place. And so even though we're living in discouraging times, you can be encouraged. And I want to help you see that this morning. Psalm 73, look at verse 1 with me. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Notice verse 2. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. The psalmist reveals to us that he is discouraged. He is at a place of discouragement when he writes this psalm. It, uh, what does discouragement mean? Well, the word discouragement means a loss of confidence or enthusiasm. Many times people will confuse discouragement with the symptoms of discouragement. There's only one real root cause of discouragement. And we'll find that in our text this morning. But there are many symptoms that 
lead us to discouragement. Notice with me in verse number 3. Why was the psalmist discouraged? Look at verse 3. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, he looks around and he sees that he himself is one that is trying to serve God and he is suffering. He is trying to serve God and things are not going the way that he would want them to go. Perhaps you and I have been there. Somehow, some way, it has infiltrated into Christianity the thinking that because we're, we belong to Christ, because we're Christians, that everything should go our way. Everything should be smooth and everything should be, uh, all of our needs should be met. But that the Bible does not even hint to that idea. Now, there are some who preach the prosperity gospel, but that's not it. You know, Job said that life is few of days and full of sorrow. There's a completely different picture painted for us in the Scriptures. We will not experience, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but we will not experience heaven on earth. We have to die to get to heaven or be raptured. And so while we're here... We're always going to be facing discouraging things. We're always going to be bombarded on every side. You might look at me and say, Pastor, well, you are not going through what I'm going through. I understand that. And I I would never pretend to uh, think that my sorrow is more than your sorrow or my suffering is more than your suffering because the suffering you're going through is, is your suffering. You're facing it. And so I'm not comparing suffering What I'm trying to tell you is, even in the suffering, you can remain encouraged. You can keep from becoming discouraged. So he looks around and he sees all of the evil prospering, yet he himself is trying to serve the Lord. He himself is trying to be right, yet things aren't going his way. But he looks at the evil and he sees them and he sees that they have everything they ever wanted and that they continually keep on prospering. Notice what he says in verse 4. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They they, they seem to live long lives and and partake in that wickedness and evil. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. They seem to be more healthy or or reasonably uh, getting along better, faring more than he was. Verse 6, Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than a heart could wish. Man, I, I I can identify with this. I can identify with this. As a pastor, many times I've thought, man, Lord, how do these evil people get to prosper in the world and we Christians are scraping by? And he says, verse 8, They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. The psalmist is telling God, these these men are proud and they, they speak against you, Lord, and they do all these things, and yet they continue to prosper. Verse 10, therefore his people return hither and the waters full of cup were wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They, they make fun of us. They question the very existence of God because we're suffering and they're living in 
the, the lap of ease. Verse 12, Behold, these are ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. This is the psalmist. And he's looking and he's seeing this. And he is very discouraged by this. And notice what he says about his own self in 13. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. And he is saying, have I done all this? Have I done all of my the purity, the things I've done for the Lord? Have I done it all in vain? Have I confessed my sin? Have I done all these things I do for the glory of God? Have I done these things? For no reason? I think he's extremely discouraged. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. This is something that he couldn't get away from. When he was up in the morning, it was before his face as he began his day. At night when he lay in his bed, it was before his face. Every day he was plagued with it. With this discouragement. Because it seemed that the wicked were faring better than he. Verse 15, If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. When he set out to think about these things and to try to figure it out and to reason them out, they were too much for him. What I want you to see here is what is going through his mind, what is going through his heart, the discouragement he is facing, what he lists here is not what causes discouragement. These are but the symptoms of discouragement. What is it, what is it that causes discouragement? Look at verse 17. All these thoughts were painful to me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. What was it? How, how do I know that these are just mere symptoms? Well, the word sanctuary here actually means the presence of God. It was the dwelling place of God. So what the psalmist is saying, all these things that were coming up on me, were yet symptoms because the real issue was I was distant from God. There was something between me and God. There was something be between our relationship that hindered a full fellowship and that was the cause of my discouragement. These are but yet the symptoms of it. And it sounds elementary. It sounds elementary. It sounds real. It can't be that simple, Pastor. It is that simple. Over and over, repeatedly through the Scriptures, we have the warning that there will be no other gods before us. Whenever we put materialistic things, whenever we put people, whenever we put anything between us and God, we are distancing ourselves from God. When we stack those rocks, whatever they may be, up in front of us, between us and God, there's distance. We open ourselves for discouragement, and that is the real cause of discouragement. How do I know this? Well, in verses 3 through 16, the focus of the psalmist is on the prosperity of the wicked. He is envious of what they have and that what he does not have. 
He's envious because it doesn't seem fair that they get to prosper while he suffers and he knows God. That's his argument. The more he focuses on that, the further away he drifts from God. But his discouragement comes because he has put something, he has distanced himself from God. Verse 17 is the turning point. It's huge. He said, I was in this discouraging place and it was so painful, it was like a plague until I came into the presence of God. When he drew closer to God, his perspective changed. And and this is so important, church. How did this change? Notice verse 18. Surely thou didst set them up in slippery places. Wait a minute, I forgot, verse 17. Let me go back to verse 17. His perspective changed until I went to the sanctuary of God. I didn't finish this last part. Then understood I their end. It was a then moment. It was the wow turning point. Then I understood their end. See, what happens is he had been focused as we are on the temporal and not on the eternal. And let me tell you, the greatest challenge you will face today is to focus on the eternal and not the temporal. Now, I like nice things, and I'm not saying that you do not have to, uh, that you have to sell everything and be a monk. I'm not, te- I'm not saying that. But what I am telling you is this. If you continually distance yourself from God by putting things in between you and God, whether it be people, whether it be material possessions, whether it be career, whether it be yourself, it doesn't matter. You're distancing yourself from God. You're setting yourself up for discouragement. And he, his perspective changed. He says, now I understand. I get it now. Verse 18. Surely thou didst set them up in slippery places. Thou castest them down in destruction. Now he sees what happens to them. They're not always going to be this way. How are they brought into desolation as in the moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. He sees now. He no longer looks at them and their prosperity, but now he sees them and their hopelessness. He sees them and as being destroyed and finished because he sees the end product. Listen, heaven is not a consolation prize. Heaven is not something that makes us think, okay, you know, all right, we get heaven, so I guess, you know, we have something to tell people at funerals. No. Heaven is real. And it's called heaven because it is heaven and it's not like here. And it is something that we should uh, look for and long for. Look at verse 22. He was convicted over his condition. See, when your perspective changes, many times your priorities will change. So he says in verse 22, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. He's confessing his sin to the Lord. I was like a beast because I was so focused on their prosperity and the it not being fair and the injustice that I had distanced myself from you, God, and I was nothing more before you than a brute beast. 
But notice how his perspective changes, so does his priorities. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. I still belong to you. I still belong to you, God. Though everything else goes wrong, I still belong to you. You're still my God. You're still on the throne. You will make everything right. And thou hast holden me by my right hand. Notice he didn't say, I'm clinging to you and holding on to you with my right hand. But you, Lord, are holding on to me. His perspective changed. Verse 24, Thou shalt guide me. You will guide me with thy counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. You will guide me all through this life. And when this life is over, you will receive me to heaven where you are. Verse 25, he comes to this and he is so overwhelmed with it. In verse 25 he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, here's what happened. His discouragement came because he was focused on the people. He had distanced himself and he was envious of what they had being unbelievers, being ungodly and what they had. But when he came to himself and he realized this and he understood because he came back to the presence of God, his perspective changed and so did his priorities. Now his focus is on God. It's not on himself. It's not on what he doesn't have, but it's on God and what God is giving him in eternal blessings. He's given him promises that he is always going to be with him. He will guide him through life. He will take him to heaven. He is, he is your strength. He is your portion. And that is what changed. That's what's so huge. Whom have I have in heaven but thee? Everything changed when Asaph stopped focusing on what he didn't have or what others had, what he wanted, and he began... To focus on his relationship with God. He went from despair to rejoicing. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I don't know how someone could stand at the funeral of a loved one if that loved one didn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If there was no future heaven for them, I don't know how they could face that. That would be utterly hopeless, I think. But he went from despair to rejoicing. And notice what he says here in verse 27. For lo, notice this word, they that are from, far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all of them that go a-whoring from thee. Now, many people think, well, he's talking about exclusively lost people that are not saved. But I think if you read that closely, perish just means that they'll die in an untimely death and He will destroy them, that all that go a-whoring from Him. And I think that there implies the chastisement of God upon them. That distance, they are that far from thee, that distance that's there. But notice verse 28. Here is the application of this message. Three things from this verse that will help you remain encouraged 
in discouraging times. Verse 28, notice number one, but it is good for me to draw near to God. The first thing I would invite you to do is I would invite you to draw near to God. In James, James wrote this past powerful scripture, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. Nigh means close. In other words, if you want to be closer to God, you move closer to Him. You make the first step. God never moved. If you're not as close as you once were to God, He didn't move. You moved. And if you'll take that first step, He will come to you. It may be 1% yours and 99% His. I don't know. But the Bible says that if you will draw close to God, He will draw close to you. The ball is in your court. You do not have to remain discouraged. You do not have to live a defeated life. You can be encouraged today because God is still on the throne and He has still given us the promise that if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. How do you draw near to God? Well, <clears throat> church, you've got to have a devotional life. Listen, I, I want to tell you this. And I, I want to say this as honestly as I can. Far too long, churches have depended upon their pastors and their Sunday school teachers for their spiritual growth. You're in charge of your spiritual growth. And I know that this has got us all messed up, but maybe, just maybe, God is removing some of the things. You see, I, I'm, cons- I'm convinced that most people today are more, more upset that they can't go to the ball games like they used to and they can't have the freedom they wanted to have more than they are, they're declining uh, closeness to God. We're more concerned about these things and these events that we want to do than we are that we might have distanced ourselves from God. And God might be using this to draw us in closer to Him. Don't think that throughout the Scriptures that God didn't use plagues and He didn't use pestilences and He didn't use all these things to draw His people back to Him. For far too long, we have been enamored with the concept of church and church growth model. And all along the while, we're building churches full of people, but we're not building people that are close to God and that's their priority in life. And you and I have to stand up. It takes us uh, seven chapters a day. You can read through this in less than a year from cover to cover. And with all the resources we have... The internet, you can get on the phone and download the Bible app and it will read the Bible to you while you're in the car. You can turn off on your way to work. You can listen to the Scriptures and you can grow. There are devotionals and um, you can do all that. But we would rather spend our time mindlessly surfing through the internet, laughing at stupid cat memes or memes, whatever they're called. I don't know what it's called. And, And we think that we're doing something productive. We don't have time to do anything. Listen, you are in charge of your own spiritual growth. And I challenge you and I urge you this morning, if you want to stay encouraged in discouraging times, draw near to God. Spend some time in prayer. Listen, you don't have to come to the church and kneel at the altar to pray. You can if you want. Some of my best praying is done in the shower, done in the car, done in the woods. Because I don't have anybody listening and I can be honest and just talk to God. I don't have to use this... uh, Preacherly voice, oh Father God in whom... No! The Bible says that I can call Him Abba Father, Daddy, Daddy, Papa, Papa. 
I can call Him, Father, draw near to God and He'll draw near unto you. Secondly, He says, I have put my trust in the Lord God. If you want to stay encouraged, trust the Lord. Now listen, we all trust the Lord for our salvation. We all trusted the Lord for our salvation. And we understand that. We know what it means to trust the Lord for our salvation. We believed in Him. But I'm talking about daily, in everything we face, have we been able to get to the place in our life that we turn it over to the Lord? Now listen, it's easy to stand up here and preach. But it's difficult to live. Because humanity, we want to be in control of everything. We want to, we want to pray to God... But we want to pray in such a way that we tell God how to answer the prayer. And then when He doesn't answer it the way we want Him to answer it, we get all offended and pout and mope. And, and we've got to get over that. We've got to trust in the Lord. You've got to trust. I mean, it blows my mind that this election and people are all being out of shape. And I'm just telling you this. They say, well, this, the Democrats cheated. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13 that God puts in who He wants to put in. And you say, well, but preacher, but they cheated. Well, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. You think God was sitting in heaven and said, oh, man, those those clever Democrats, I didn't see that cheating coming. Well, that's ridiculous. There's nothing that escapes the mind of God. There's nothing that catches God, God off guard. God knows everything. So quit worrying about it. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in a man, a president, a congress person. Don't do that. Trust in the Lord. And number three, that I may declare all thy works. You start declaring the wonderful works of God. You know, people on Facebook moping around about this and that and the other, they forget that Jesus was the one who said, Lazarus, Come forth, and the dead man got up. I am convinced that Jesus had to say Lazarus because if he didn't say Lazarus, if he just said come forth, they all would have come out of the graves. We forget that it was Jesus who was sleeping in the ship and they woke him up when the sea was very, very uh, raging, if you will. And we forget that this same Jesus stood up and said, Peace be still, and the wind stopped. We forget that Jesus took this little young boy's few fishes and uh, several fishes and a few loaves of bread and fed 5,000 plus, <clears throat> plus uh, women and children. We forget all of these things. One that always amazed me is in the garden when Peter took a swipe at Malchus the soldier and cut his ear off. And Jesus reaches down and picks up the ear and puts it back on. We forget those things. We forget that He is in control. we got to start declaring the wonderful works of God. we got to stop being alarmists. Stop being fear mongers. Start preaching the goodness of God. You know the Bible says it is the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. I'm convinced that some people, they can't do anything but try to scare the hell out of people. You can't. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Declare His wonderful works, the wonderful works of God. That's what helped the psalmist. What moved the psalmist from despair and discouragement to being encouraged? I'll tell you what it was. Drawing closer to God. You see, the goal of the devil is to get you to believe that you are better off without God. Think about this. 
Adam and Eve in the garden. There's no one else. They're faithful to each other. They have the command of God to eat any fruit you want to eat, but don't eat of that one tree. And the devil began to attack it, and the devil comes in, and the devil actually convinced them, convinced Eve, that she would be better off without God. And he has done that in marriages. He's done that in in homes. He's done that in churches. He's done it all over and over and over. The goal of the devil is to get you to believe that you're better off with God. Put you some distance between you and God. You don't want God controlling your life. You don't want to be uh, under uh, manipulation of the church and all this. You don't want that. That's the goal of the devil is to move you away from God. Why? Because he knows he can get you discouraged. And if he can get you discouraged, he can get you destroyed. Because a discouraged Christian is one who is inactive, not doing anything. But you show me an encouraged Christian, and I'll show you one who has a daily time with God. I'll show you one who draws near to God, who trusts in the Lord, who is declaring His wonderful works. Church, it's time that we stand up and be the church that God called us to be. We've had enough training for years. I've uh, been in this church 17 years in January. I've been in total of ministry in March. It'll be a total of 25 years of ministry. And in all those 25 years, we have been teaching and preaching and trying to get people to move from their slumber and take ownership of their spirituality. And now is the time that the church of God rises up and draws near to God, trusts in the Lord, and declares His wonderful works. But let me tell you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no hope. You have no hope. You are doomed and damned. You couldn't be encouraged if you tried. You know, the Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. And the Bible teaches because of our sin, we deserve to die. For the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible teaches. The wages of sin is death. And everyone will die. And if you die not knowing Jesus Christ, you'll go to a place called hell that is a literal place where the fire... Uh, is not quenched and the worm dieth not. It's a place of torment. And the reason anyone goes there is because they reject the free gift of salvation of our Savior Jesus Christ. So if you believe that you, and understand that you are a sinner and that you were inherited that sin from Adam, wherefore is by one sin or while one man sin entered into the world, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, and that death is not just a physical death, but it's a second death, that you'll be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. But if you believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, never, never sinned, Died on the cross for all of your sins and for my sins. He took all of them, every thought you'd ever have, every bad thought, every every uh, word you would ever say, every deed you would ever do. Jesus knew about all of them and He took them on Himself and He died on the cross for you. And He took Him off the cross and put Him in the tomb and three days later He arose from the grave. And the Bible teaches us that if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're willing to turn to Him in faith, believing And call on His name, He will save you. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, I don't know where you are in your relationship. I don't know if you're saved or not. But if you're not saved, I would like to invite you to open up your heart this morning and invite Christ into your life. 
You can pray like this. Now listen, saying the words is not what prays you, but, or saves you. But what, what saves you is that you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that He is willing to save you if you call on Him. He arose from the grave and by that same power He'll save you. You can pray like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. I also realize because of my sin, I deserve to die. But I believe you died in my place. I want you to come into my heart. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Jesus, the best way I know how, I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you, trusting you and you alone for eternal salvation. Lord, I'm asking you, please save me. Friend, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it,